Welcome to Helpful Social Work. Social work has the power to change people's lives for the better. This podcast aims to help you learn, think and act with integrity so that people who need social work get help that will transform their lives. Welcome to Helpful Social Work. I'm Jerry, And I'm Jo. And throughout this series, we're looking at equality and anti-oppressive practice. We're using the Equality Act in England as a framework. We started off with revisiting the ethics and the social work role around fighting discrimination and the theories that support this. And each month now, we'll be looking at the evidence of inequality related to a protected characteristic and considering how social workers can challenge discrimination and uphold rights. Last podcast, we were talking about religion and belief. And this month, we will consider sex. Yeah, and thank you for listening through the summer because we don't put a podcast out in August. And so when we did put the podcast out in September, it was really nice to see people hadn't disappeared and they did download it, um, rush to download it. And also there was a real flurry of downloads in Australia. So I'm not sure what's gone on there. Oh, that's my mates. <laughs> <laughs> so that's fantastic to hear. <laughs> but yeah, it's really, really lovely when we see the global picture and the spread and the reach of it. And so we really hope you enjoy the podcast and you can let us know what you think on our website, which is www.helpfulsocialwork.com. Or you can comment on iTunes or on our Facebook page, Helpful Social Work Podcast. Um, or on Twitter, I'm at Effective Prac and Joe is at JFox underscore Joe. Uh, so, yeah, do let us know. And reviews on iTunes are particularly helpful because people can find us. Yeah, it's a great thing, isn't it, to um, have, have people listening to this. So thank you very much, everybody. Now, we're looking at sex today. And I have to say that when this was in my calendar, podcast on sex with Jerry, it really caused titters in the office. And um, in the film with Ruth Gainsbourg, I don't know if uh, any of you have seen it, A Matter of Sex, which was excellent, by the way. Every time she talks about sex, when highlighting the discrimination women were experiencing through legislation, people kind of giggled. So let's unpack why we're talking about sex by referencing the Equality Act. Sex is a protected characteristic under the Equality Act in England, and that means it's protected by law from discrimination. Public bodies, which many of uh, many social workers work for, have got to consider sex as a characteristic when carrying out their day-to-day -day work, when they're shaping policy, delivering services, and in relation to their own employees. And they also must have due regard to the need to eliminate discrimination advance equality of opportunities and foster good relationships between different people when carrying out their activities. Got to say, I love that as an obligation. And the fostering of good relations is a brilliant um, thing to aspire to, isn't it? Yeah. It really is. And it's good to, be, to kind of revisit these and just remind ourselves that as public servants, this is some of the stuff that we're involved in, you know, um, because I think sometimes we can get caught up in the task. And our code of ethics also requires us to challenge discrimination and oppression, uphold rights and tackle inequality. And that ask goes far beyond the letter of the law. Now, just a helpful definition, I think. The UK government defines sex as referring to the biological aspects of an individual as determined by their anatomy, which is produced by their chromosomes, hormones and their interactions. It's generally male or female and something that is assigned at birth. The Equality Act 2010 
says you must not be discriminated against because you are or are not a particular sex. I think that's really interesting, actually, that it's not just um, that I shouldn't be discriminated against because I am female, but also I shouldn't be discriminated against because I'm not male. And those two things could be a little bit different. Uh, so we're going to be thinking really about how social workers challenge and, and overcome discrimination on the grounds of being a particular sex. And we're going to be using kind of generally understood language rather than entering into too much of a philosophical debate. Uh, so we'll be talking about sexism, which is discrimination on the basis of being or not being female or male or a woman or a man or a girl or a boy, essentially, in kind of day to day language. And the first thing we want to sort of talk about is how that intersects with all other kinds of discrimination and oppression. And actually, intersectionality, the, the theory around this first came into um, real, it came to be, be known really uh, when Kimberly Crenshaw um, laid out in a paper in 1989 about the intersection of race and sex. Uh, and what she was doing was looking at legal cases that dealt with um, issues of racial and sexual discrimination and saying that in each case, this was in the US, um, in each case, the court's view of discrimination was a problem um, of conception, you know, of, of how we how we looked at things and the lens that we used, because the law would look at, so they would look at um, discrimination against a black woman um, and say, well, actually, you're, you're okay, because there's no discrimination against women in this workplace, or there's no discrimination against black people, but there might be an intersecting moment where actually being black and woman was a double disadvantage, which meant that you could be subject to discrimination on the basis of both race and mm. sex. Uh, and so when you're talking about anti-sexism work, intersectionality is kind of demanding a lot more of us as social workers to say we're not just looking at challenging sexism, we're looking at challenging sexism and how it intersects with different aspects of identity and different experiences. Uh, so for someone like me who might consider myself as a feminist um, and advocate for the for women's rights on the grounds of the equality of the sexes, um, I'd also need to recognise that my experience of being female may be very much more privileged um, and much mm. less oppressed than other people who be engaged in that movement. So it is really about thinking about how we uphold everyone's rights um, with all the kind of context and challenges and experience and history that might that might wrap around that for someone. Yeah, and it is a lot to think about, actually, Jerry, and, and and that's what strikes me every time. And I keep thinking about, okay, well, how do we how do we think about this in terms of practice? I mean, there's lots of evidence available about sexism and the impact of being male or female on how you're perceived or treated. So that means that, firstly, there's how does how does um, sexism impact on you? as a practitioner and then it's about how does it also impact on the culture or the responses that we have to the people around us and to the people we're working with. So the first thing that kind of springs to mind for me is the different ways in which men are treated in some areas of social work um, because the profession is really heavily female dominated yet many of the key decision-making roles, particularly in the policy tiers, still tend to be dominated by males. And in addition, some of the more hands-on caring roles, such as family workers and carers, tend to be female. 
So if you're a male working with a family that has a very stereotyped idea of the different roles men and women should play in a family, it may either positively or negatively affect the impact you can have. And you've got to kind of keep that in mind. So when we talk about sexism, it is about, you know, how females are treated differently and how males are treated differently just based on their sex. And our work is really relational. And so we need to be quite curious about how other people are perceiving our roles in terms of male and female stereotypes, mm. because it could be really impacting on how helpful we're able to be. Some of the things that I've been thinking about here is, you know, that in a very patriarchal society, messages about parenting and confronting conforming to societal norms may be received better from a male who has more status or they might be considered beneath a male's notice. Um, and then there's, you know, some work might be seen as women's work, caring for babies, et cetera, et cetera. Similarly, males might be sent out to accompany female workers when there's a high risk of violence with the assumption that the male might be more comfortable or more able to manage that situation. Mm. So for me, the way to avoid sexism is to be curious about people and their experiences in, as individuals and don't assume that the fact they're male or female does or does not dictate the way they experience and interact with the world. Yeah. And, you know, spend time asking them about their experiences. It's really interesting the way that different facets of identity are built up, isn't it? We've talked about this, I think, in the podcast in the last series about how your identity is, is partly about who you are and partly about who people perceive you to be and partly mm -hmm. about what people expect of you. Uh, um, so it's kind of all bound up with those the sense of self, but that being really um, developed in relationship. And so we've got that to think about in terms of how we understand ourselves and how we understand ourselves in relation to others and how we understand others in relation to us. But we also have an influence there because we're part of the, the conversation that someone else is having about who they are in the world. And so when we come to see them, particularly if you're a social worker, that's that's a role where that's a relationship where it will make an impression on the person um, because it's always going to be significant to have a social worker come into your life. Mm -hmm. So that conversation about who I am is now happening with a social worker. So there's quite a lot of influence that we can have depending on who we are and what our beliefs are about people's identity and how we respond to their own identity. Uh, yeah. Um, I mean, I think the other thing that I really wanted to, to, to kind of highlight it, was about the way that our laws and policies and practices uh, and structures are kind of set up um, and how they affect people differently because of their sex. So they're both responding to assumptions and expectations and ideas about um, male and female, and they're also influencing those. Uh, so if you if you look at any area of social work practice and then look at the kind of research or the statistics around it, you can generally get an, a sense from good statistics about whether there's a difference in experience um, based on sex. So if you're looking at children who go into care, people who are detained under the Mental Health Act, um, or the example that I'd want to give is about people who are carers. And the every year there's a report on the state of caring in the UK. And the last one uh, that I've seen, which is 2019, uh, talked to 
7,000 and 7,500 carers, um, 81% identified as female. And there was a real difference in some fundamental things around whether people had a workplace pension or a plan around retirement. It's higher, more likely for men than for women. Uh, women were more likely to be relying on what a, sp a spouse or a partner had arranged. Um, so even if you just look at something as, as kind of such a small bit of the picture as that, you know, finances for carers, there's a sex-related difference there. Uh, and so that would hopefully affect our practice with carers, the kinds of things that we'd ask about, the kind of things that we'd be concerned about or interested in, and also the things that would be preoccupying the people that we're working with. I think that's uh, it's such an important thing that you've picked there, Joe, because we know that um, poverty in older females, um, once they retire, um, it can, is really impacted on by the fact that they often haven't had the same continuous pen, pension benefits um, because they've taken caring breaks. And so they have a very different pension structure um, than males. And so, you know, this has really pushed a lot of older women into distress in their in their older age and certainly in places like Australia um, women over 55 are amongst um, some of the um, some some of the people in Australia who are who are impacted on by poverty um, and, yeah. and difficulty finding other jobs and difficulty finding places to live etc cetera, etc cetera. so and that's really important for us to understand both as a potential influencer of people's experience like why so if you look at somebody who comes to meet a social worker um always met by a social worker at a point in their life there's a really interesting question about how aspects of their identity have brought them to that point and mm. the, the, the individual and structural elements to that and then there's also a really important question about well how do we respond mm -hmm. given who this person is um, and again there's real scope for individual and cultural and structural responses that could be more or less helpful. Uh, but really understanding the research behind it so we've got a sense of why people's story might be as they are and also how, what are the pitfalls or the potential for the response? Yeah, it's and, and what remedy there is um, in education and in law and in challenge, you know, because you've got to think about remedy, as you said, in all those areas, haven't you? Um, because there's there's the reallocation of resources, but there's also the kind of challenging of the law and and um, the educating of people to think about what else they can do um, to support themselves as well and make things different. So yeah, it's um for me the other thing that I started to think about was this kind of idea um, that children because I work in children's services children need both role models um, and they need both sexes involved with them and you know and I started thinking well do we understand enough about what matters to children that they have both sexes involved in it, it with them and what sort of role modeling are we aiming for um, you know, are we asking what can a male or female do that cannot be done by the other? Mm. And why do we think role models from both sexes matter so much for children's identity? Now, I don't have any answers to that. I'm not going to then tell you, and this is the answer. It was just something I started thinking about mm. because uh, I started practice in the 80s. And in the 80s, um, really, you did not see many same-sex couples coming through in fostering or adoption 
um, at all, either female or male. And there were quite a few conversations through the 80s and the 90s um, and perhaps still today about um, absent men Mm -hmm. and the burden on women of caring and the impact that that had, particularly um, for boys and young men, how they learnt to uh, be male. And I just kind of thought, I was just kind of thinking about it and thinking, you know, that I think a lot of that practice has moved on. I mean, definitely in terms of um, adoption and fostering and things like that. But what what is it that you're holding in your head around these stories um, and it's also really important not to to be to be curious about assumptions um, and to keep being curious and not to replace assumptions with other assumptions, mm. which can quite easily happen um, as well. So it's great that our understanding and our response and our evidence has moved on and our experience has moved on. But let's keep that alive, that curiosity alive, because um, we don't know what it is that we're making assumptions about now. I, I, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and that is one of the things, isn't it? The one of the lovely things about having practiced a long time is that you can see, um, practice evolving and you can see research and information, um, challenging us and helping us think more and more about how we can make our care fairer, ethical, helpful, you know, and humane. Um, one of the other areas that I was kind of thinking about that is often um, affected or, or, or protected perhaps sometimes by sex is the um, area of working with domestic violence. There's a lot of conversations around the sex of the worker. Males are often excluded from refuges um, for, you know, because of um, the trauma that women and children have faced there, um, those jobs are, are often protected. So, you know, jobs that are protected for women. Um, yeah. So that was just another area that I was kind of thinking about. Yeah, and I think we've um, we've talked a bit about um, the importance of um, understanding diversity of experience um, but also not making assumptions about that experience so domestic abuse actually is a really good example of mm. something where um, there's there's a group of people who would have um, who would be more likely to experience it which would generally be females mm. um, but that doesn't mean that males don't experience it um, mm. and and I think this is where it, it becomes really interesting to think about the the response that we need and the response that we need is is both about what's important and what's urgent. So it's it's going to be important for everyone um, for them, them not to experience domestic abuse. Mm. Uh, so it's, it's just as important for every member of the population. Uh, but there'll be an urgency to some people's um, need for us to address it because they are either experiencing or more likely to experience it. And so you prioritise kind of on that urgency. Um, so it is, I think, if you think about sex, it can be potentially appropriate to prioritise something as urgent. That's a response to a particular mm. um, sex or a particular um, sex intersecting with another group, um, yet another element of identity. So actually we have to do something about 
to support these people because of the particular um, urgency of what's happening and the particular well, priority of it. But that doesn't mean that it's not important for everyone else. Yeah, I think I think that is an important point, though, Jerry, because, you know, statistics would still tell us that overwhelmingly victims of um, domestic abuse are female mm -hmm. and that actually overwhelmingly women die from domestic abuse more than anyone else um, and more than one woman a week in this country. So actually there is an urgency to how we respond to that um, and in that way it can be seen um, as a as a a woman's issue, I guess, as something that you know that is that is that is very important for us to address for women. Certainly a women's priority. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think um, Rebecca Pierce, who's one of the professional officers in Basel, England, wrote a really um, strong blog on this area in March. Um, yeah, so what six months ago, saying essentially social mm. workers must do better, mm. not only to protect our female majority workforce, workforce, but also to champion the rights of the women and girls we support. Mm. because all are subject to institutionalised sexism. So that means yeah. um, we should call for us to really understand intersectional feminism. So, for example, recognising that black and minoritised women are um, five times more likely to die in pregnancy. Um, and then also um, making a conscious decision to try to unlearn the assumptions and internalised kind of sexism that, that we've all been exposed to mm. and really trying to add to our professional development and understand the all the facets of domestic abuse and particularly the fact that there's all this new technology that's adding to um, yes you know, to the arenas where we'd need to, to look at it and she also said something that I think was really striking for me which is about um, challenging the the kind of male dominated nature of our society and the ideas of, of masculinity, which are also really harmful. Mm. Uh, so, so it emphasizes the importance of challenging sexism for everyone's benefit. So it's not just about equal rights for women. Um, no, it's that actually every human does better when we don't discriminate um, negatively on the basis of sex. It's just really bad for everyone. Um, and those sort of assumptions about what male or female people can do or should do are bad for everyone as well. Because uh, they, they, they sort of stifle everyone's potential and opportunity. Yeah, and I think it's interesting us having this conversation, isn't it, as two women wanting to be fair and not to discriminate against against anybody based on their sex but you know being in a place where we can say that actually um, women's rights still do need to be protected and there are still many challenges that that women face mm -hmm. um, and I've been really interesting um, just lately there's been a lot of um, TV coverage and also discussion about talking about the um, the trauma that was experienced by women in the 50s, 60s and 70s when they were forced through public opinion but also through a lack of resources to give up their children when they were born out of wedlock, which is not that long ago. I mean, the women who are talking 
um, are women who have perhaps had other families who are parents now, grandparents, you know, um, and women's rights in these cases were assumed by a moral system that really sought to punish them for getting themselves pregnant. And, you know, to me, my own sister was actually one of these children and my mother was one of those women and she had a kind of underlying sadness her whole life. And the fact that they're only now able to talk about this and start to think about how it can be addressed and resolved mm. so many years later, 50, 60 years later, is, is, is quite a um, comment on the powerlessness that, that, that those people probably have continued to experience. Yeah. Yeah, and there's a huge questions um, that that points to around how sexism like both reduces people's choice or determines their choices to some extent um, but also stifles their opportunity to have a voice about who they are and what has happened to them mm. and I think that kind of bringing that back to what social workers can do um, and many social workers will have similar sorts of experiences um, both the practical um, ability or hope or empowerment or opportunity to kind of build options or enable options for people. There's that whole kind of practical element, isn't there, about how do we support people, empower people, work with people for them to have more options. But there's also the voice element, you know, how do we advocate for and with people so that they are able to express their identity mm. and their experiences. Uh, so. Yeah, and then there's also the kind of absolute priorities of you know, who right now is is having their life um, or their well-being limited by this. Mm. And I think that's right, isn't it? It's far from over. It's not like sex discrimination is over. It's not. It's not over. People experience it every day. Um, and part of what we're trying to do in social work practice is first of all understand where we ourselves might be acting because as you said I mean I thought that was really interesting what Rebecca wrote when she said you know making a conscious choice to unlearn a lifetime of internalized misogyny through training so you know that would suggest that actually we all have to strive to educate ourselves and confront ourselves and think about all of the little stories and the little attitudes and behaviors that we carry into our practice yeah. um, you know for me another one that I was thinking about was contact and you know when children uh, when the courts make decisions about why children should have contact you know does sexism ever weigh in there is there a presumption that a child should see a father because it's important um, despite risk or is there presumptions that a male cannot be a full-time carer or that the mother is the right and proper person. I mean, there's a whole range of things that could be playing there that if we never think to wonder about them or ask about them, we could just accept those decisions as just yeah. without really taking the time to go, but is it just? Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, is it fair? Is, is there a really strong rationale for it based on this individual and their story, or is this coming from a generalised place? 
or, yeah. or from a presumption. Yeah, so there's a lot of work that's needed. Um, and it does start with, you know, many people have, have done much more of the work than I have um, mm. and are much further along the path. But I think it always starts with just that questioning about, you know, the curiosity about who people are and what influences our identity um, and how we influence each other's identity. And then also the curiosity about why people have different experiences um, and what what social work's part to play in responding to that and changing that and challenging that. And I think that's challenging it again on a on that personal one to one level, um, but also collectively challenging it. And there's something for me in all of this, like one of the things I've thought about, I mean, this has been a fascinating series to do because there's, it, it's raised for me many more questions and answers. When we started off this and we were doing things like assessment and planning and all that stuff, I was really quite um, comfortable and confident in what I was saying. And I was like, oh, yeah, I'm drawing on all my experiences. But this this series has really made me think about how much airtime I give these issues and how consciously I think about them when I'm practicing and what I can do to bring them closer to the surface so that they're actually nearer to my practice and that I know when to stop and challenge myself and think about this. Um, and, you know, Kimberly Cranshaw's work is fantastic for that and really helpful, as is actually this John Burnham's social graces mm. can be really helpful when you're thinking about this. And just having kind of little tools and things to remind you that actually doing the task and having the answers is not the same as really attending to the individual and being thoughtful about their lived life and as you said earlier Jerry what's brought them to this place and what is it it's that context that surrounds each person isn't it what's in that context that is working for them and what is it in that context that's working against them and if those if they are encountering things that are working against them are they things that we as social workers can challenge and push against and advocate for because it comes back to that idea, doesn't it, that social work is a is a human rights profession. And so, therefore, we're looking for opportunities to help people thrive um, and thinking of whether people have experienced sexism and how adversely that's affected their life is, is really important. So I think the things that I'm going to go away and try and reflect on are firstly that question about what I've internalised um and the only real way to understand that is to is to get some different views so read talk to people um be curious about situations that i come across and the sorts of responses that i have and then there's also a question about um how we notice those you know these um experiences of adverse discrimination around mm. sex um everything from the small aggressions through to the really big kind of injustices mm. 
and what we do about it, how we respond to it is really important, isn't it? Because it's, um, it is good to talk about things and think about things. I really enjoy that. But, um, I think we have to close the loop with action. And so that's, that's the kind of last thing for me is, you know, what do you do about these things? How do you close that loop and actually be active as a, as a practitioner? <laughs>